0: Welcome back to another episode of The Disruptors, brought to you by Digital Intent. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. When it's time to go to market with a tech product, most marketing teams tend to focus all of their energy on acquisition, but there are a bunch of growth levers that exist inside the product that are often easier to manipulate and harder to copy. My guest today is Mike Rome, currently head of growth at Eat Street, and Mike has made it his mission over the last 10 years to understand how to drive consistent, repeatable growth for tech products. In this episode, we talk about the different levers for growth, the importance of process over tactics, and some of the competencies that you need inside of your team to make growth happen. Mike's a super laid back but very competitive guy, and I always learn something new from him every single time we talk. I'm sure you will too. So, with that, let's go to Mike. So Mike, thanks for joining us. I wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons. I think you have a pretty unique sort of background having been on sort of a variety of of organizations. But one of the things that I think a lot of larger companies uh, that are trying to do is innovative stuff, especially like disruptive, innovative stuff. And then especially within that, things that touch a, an end user or a customer run into a ton of the same kinds of problems that a lot of startups run into. And I think that you're your way of thinking and your methodology is actually going to be really, really relevant uh, and helpful for them. So I'm really excited to have you on here. Why don't we just start with kind of your background a little bit and how you kind of ended up where you currently are?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, first, for starters, Sean, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So, so sort of my story is just studied a business undergrad and was always really into math. And so I took a lot of like stats classes and stuff like that and uh, sort of ended up in the world of, of management consulting right out of school and was basically like just helping large consumer packaged good companies, Kraft, Procter & Gamble, organizations like that, just figure out what was happening like in store in terms of like how people were purchasing product and their product and also competitor products basically look at um, really large data sets to tell a story, right, to inform direction for for a brand or a product. And I did that for a couple of years. Consulting was cool in that there was lots of different projects and the people were were super smart. I'm always like a big believer in that, trying to kind of surround yourself with with lots of people who are smarter than you. And it just really pushes you to get better. And so I appreciated that aspect of the job. But I think culturally it it probably wasn't the best fit for me um and so i just kind of like wandered my way into the chicago tech scene i was lucky enough to get introduced to a handful of companies that were doing some pretty cool things on the cusp of some really cool things and took a job at a a startup you know kind of was using these these same skill sets of of math to kind of like look at what was happening with with a product and where users were getting hung up and stuff like that and iterating on the user experience. And and then I got into like a lot of direct response marketing. So not just once people get to the site or, or the web application or, or the mobile application, how do we convert them? But how do we actually get them there? We cross paths for a while there and, and I got to work on the fun and DI and, now I work for another uh, online ordering and, and food delivery company. Uh, it's a later stage, Series C company. All of these startup experiences were around the, sort of the intersection of marketing and product, like how do we use math to 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 drive more people to these assets that we have effectively, and how do we find like the fastest path to sustainable growth?
0: You mentioned kind of the intersection of growth and product. We talked about this in the context of my class, and the whole premise kind of behind my class is sort a little bit of that around rethinking a little bit of what marketing means, at least as it relates to the the kinds of technology products in particular that so many of us are dealing with these days. When you say that things like the product is the marketing, or that a lot of the levers that you can influence from a marketing perspective actually live inside of the product itself. What do you you mean when you're talking about that kind of thing? If
1: anyone's interested in in reading more about it, you can just look up Dave McClure's Startup Metrics for Pirates. Um, But he essentially talks about these sort of five levers for growth. And I think if you're about to build a software product, I think one of the challenges a lot of companies deal with is it's so easy to track lots of things today. And I think one of the dangers in doing that is sort of having the noise degrade the signal. And, 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 and what you really want to try to do is like operate above the blizzard. And what I mean by that is you, you want to figure out the metrics that are actually indicative of like putting you on a path to sustainable growth. So I like Dave mcclaire's levers. He, he talks about them there. There there's five of them. Um, acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, and referral. And so we can just run through the definitions really quick. But acquisition to me, is, is it's essentially marketing, right? It's how do we get people to this thing that we build? How do we get people who we think, you know, we might be solving a problem for uh, with this new new solution? How do we get them to this thing? So to me, acquisition, it's, it's marketing. Lots of people do this. Um, lots of people, like when they sort of are, are thinking through growth, they're always thinking about the channels that they can potentially tap to acquire customers. When I'm looking for success in in sort of like an acquisition channel, the two things that always matter are scale and unit economics. So scale just means can we find like a sufficient amount of customers, you know, relative to whatever the goal is. And then unit economics is just, you know, what's the cost to acquire them relative to the value that they create. We talk about that generally as LTV. And like I said, most teams do this. But what I think is sort of a a place that I've fallen down before and I've seen other companies uh, make a similar mistake is is they sort of lean too heavily on acquisition or marketing as sort of the engine for growth. Dave McClure's other levers, activation, that just means once we get people to this thing that we have, how do we get them to do what we want, right? Depending on sort of the size of of what you're selling, it it might be a purchase because it's it's an an easier sell. If it's something way more expensive, it might be like sort of a sign up or even watching a video or something like that. But there's activation and there's retention. How do you get them to continue to come back and do what you want? Revenue. Obviously, how do you get them to engage in some sort of monetization behavior? Um, and there's ways to that we can get into, you know, beyond just bringing people to your site and, and letting them buy what they think they want. And then the last one is is referral. So how do you get them to have such a great experience that they these people become the marketers for you? And so the, the really big like takeaway there is that of these five levers, only one of them is marketing. And all of these other things, right? Activation and beyond, these things happen once people get to the product itself. So I think in general, People don't spend enough time trying to like study, reflect, and and experiment with those product levers. And I mean, ultimately, they're, they're a much more ROI friendly way of growing, right? If you uh, already have people coming to something, and um, you know, you're just able to use uh, the resources you have in house to build a better product to convert more of them, or raise order values, or like I said, encourage them to become the marketers for you, you get a lot more like bang for your buck when it comes to you know that initial lever of customer acquisition.
0: You know, I would imagine that a lot of people who do marketing, they'll hear that and they'll think, okay, well, I do, I I stand up referral campaigns or uh, loyalty campaigns or on the activation side, maybe they've dabbled a little bit in like building funnels for content um, where they're trying to maybe capture email and kind of nurture you or that kind of thing. It seems like there are some process and or competency differences though, that probably mark the folks that you 're kind of thinking of here, in terms of how they go about doing these sorts of things that are a little bit different, can you talk a little bit about what what some of that looks like and so that some people are like oh yeah okay i don't i've never done anything like that. That sounds actually quite a bit different from how we are sort of used to operating
1: sure, sure yeah i think you you're, you're kind of hitting on this idea of like putting process before tactics sean, and I think that's that's something that was kind of a game changer for me um, I think kind of early on when I got into Tack you know whether I was trying to to tap. New channels and tactics within those channels to figure out good scale and, and unit economics, or whether I was, you know, trying to uh, add or maybe take away a feature on a product to, you know, improve what what we would call conversion rate optimization. In the early days, it was a lot of like who's just kind of yelling the loudest on Twitter uh, in terms of who's got an idea, um, and we'd be like, oh, that sounds interesting, right? Um, maybe we should go try that. And the danger in putting tactics before Process is just that unless you have a a, a constant way of continually like starting and finishing tasks, like it's very easy to get left behind or just, you know, everyone who's kind of listening to this podcast uh, and is thinking about maybe trying to start something new is going to be like inevitably resource constrained, right? And so I think if you don't have a process to like thoughtfully prioritize and kind of have conviction around what you're doing and and really embracing like what you're not doing, you're just going to waste too much time. And so, you know, in terms of process, there's a couple of folks I would really recommend people dig into their readings. So, you know, Andrew Chen is, is a great growth guy. He was sort of like one of the initial thought leaders. I really like Brian Belfer. I think he was the head of marketing for HubSpot a while back, and he's doing his own thing now called Reforge, which is like a really interesting sort of like a an, an MBA for uh, people within the growth space and and who are serious about you know the stuff we're talking about. Um, but those guys talk about a few things that I've adopted, and I think they work really well. I mean, one of the best ways I think to kind of figure out what to do is is to kind of have like a, a brainstorm around those five levers that we talked about: right, acquisition, activation, retention, referral, revenue. And just kind of like think about sort of like unbridled ideation. What's everything we could do? Um, and try to think of some things that, that you don't even think will work. Maybe they're um, just marketing channels that are less intuitive. Sometimes that stuff uh, gets really interesting because they're generally less crowded, less saturated, stuff like that. But once you kind of do that brainstorm and you get all the ideas down, I would I would pair that with some sort of audit, right? Some sort of quantitative audit. And it's OK if like, you know, if, if you're just starting up and you don't have something you know, you don't have really any internal data to reference to sort of inform what tactics within those levers you might hit first. I mean, you know, just think secondary research, so stuff out there about, you know, maybe like future competitors in the space, um, just general studies, insights that have been written about, you know, either the problems you're trying to solve, or even, like I said, solutions that exist. And I think kind of going through and and having that unbridled ideation around the levers and then pairing that with some sort of quantitative assessment.
0: If they do have data, are you looking at things like bottlenecks to assess like impact? Is that kind of how you're, when you, when you say doing an audit of what they already have, what are they, what should they be looking for?
1: You know this better than anyone, Sean. I think kind of one of the, the dirty little secrets of like, um, you know, trying to grow something. uh, Oftentimes, like uh, inputs and outputs are never equal, right? And, And oftentimes, the best things are just fixing broken things. A lot of people hear this term growth or growth teams, and it's, it's kind of like a a sexy notion but the reality is is um you know a lot of the times we're just like finding sort of hiccups in the product and like i said oftentimes taking things away or just making things work as we we thought they would work you know across all platforms all browsers all that good stuff um, but the the last thing i would say is yeah, so so kind of looking for where inputs and outputs not equal how do we like spend a low effort on some sort of high potential like high impact high confidence tasks so that kind of brings me to the last way that I would prioritize is is something called an ICE score. And ICE is just an acronym for impact, confidence, and effort. So after you have that brainstorm and you do an audit and you come up with all these sort of like, you know, marketing channels and tactics within there you want to test or these new product ideas as it relates to activation, retention, et cetera. The question that I would be asking in terms of like informing what you should do first is uh, for every single idea, uh, you would start with impact and you would say, if this thing were to work, what's the impact? What's the payoff, right? you know, you could put together some sort of like quick and dirty model. It doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, Just to give you, you know, just going through the exercise is what's important. And I'll, I'll get to what I mean by that. But the next thing I would say is confidence. It's great if you find an idea and you're like, wow, if this works, the impact is huge. If you don't have a lot of conviction around the impact, though, right, there's not a lot of like, primary or secondary data to support what you're saying, it's probably not the first thing I would do. Confidence matters, you know, just as much as, as impact. And then the last thing, the most important thing, I think, especially when you're starting up, uh, is effort, right? Like, what's it going to take to actually, like, test this new idea? Can I do it myself? Can someone on my team do it? Do I need a developer? Do I need a designer? Can I need multiple developers? And kind of looking again for those ideas, like, sort of the holy grail is is what are sort of the low effort, high impact, high confidence ideas. And that's where you want to start. The reason I would say I would wait effort so much more to start is just because, you know, in the early days, momentum is everything. I think if you think about sort of like the, the formula for growth, right, it's kind of like number of experiments you can run multiplied by impact, multiplied by success rate. So you kind of have these three inputs and really only one of them is like wholly in your control. And that's the number of experiments you start and finish. And the reason starting and finishing so many experiments is important is because that's how you learn, right? Most of the things I do today, most of the things I've done in the past don't work. But the important thing is not to get demoralized and to kind of ask yourself, why didn't this work, right? What was sort of our hypothesis that was disproven and, and and how does that re-inform our priorities, right? How do we move stuff around based on what we've learned? And so, you know, the more tests you can start and finish, the quicker you learn and the quicker you learn, the higher your success rates. And, you know, you kind of get that flywheel spinning. So a few thoughts in there. ICE is good. I would check out Brian Belfer, Andrew Chen, all good stuff.
0: When you tried to kind of explain that methodology to maybe folks that have more of a traditional marketing background and it's, you know, it's very scientific methody, and very, you know, sort of iterative and sort of starts from a place of we don't necessarily know it's going to work or whatever. They're probably coming from almost more of a, you know, sort of a brand marketing type of world where it's, you know, we have the one big idea and maybe we're working with an agency or something like that to execute on that idea. And hopefully it's at least informed by customers. But how do you recommend somebody that says, hey, this this all sounds awesome. I would love to try to implement something like this for my team. But I have folks like that who maybe fit that come from a different sort of uh, mentality. How do you try to make something like that happen inside of an organization?
1: The first thing I would say is all of this process where I'm throwing at you. For, for starters, a lot of it is I've just kind of borrowed from from other people who've worked on it, like the guys I mentioned before. You know, the reason I recommend it so much is just because I've I've seen it work personally. Just trying to get to the bottom of of why people think the way they do, and I think you have to be mindful and I'm always mindful that like our process is, is sort of like a living process. It's broken. We we are changing it all the time and trying to get better. And so it's really important when you have those conversations, not to think that, that you have all of the answers. But I think just starting from a place where, it isn't assumed that like your path is the only path the the reason that I recommend this path is just candidly because i've I've seen it like it's worked for me, and so I would ask questions like, why do you think that's sort of the 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 best approach um I think really kind of pushing this sort of uh, agenda it's important to just kind of like really really try to persuade people that you're just trying to you're just trying to develop a better vetting mechanism for how to to move forward everyone these days especially people who are starting something new like they they could be doing a thousand different things at once you know the one thing that's always worked for us is Process is peace of mind, in my opinion. And so sometimes just showing people a process and and showing, giving people sort of like empowering people uh, with a way to figure out not just like I told you before what to do, but what not to do. It's generally like a pretty well received approach. But yeah, again, like, you know, going in, realizing you don't have all the answers. I mean, in my job today, we have our, our um, I spend, you know, about a little over half my time on marketing and customer acquisition, the other half on product. And the other part of customer acquisition for for our company, though, is, um, you know, is very much brand focused. And I think, you know, the one thing I've, I've really learned is that, you know, brand marketing and, and direct response marketing or performance marketing, whatever you want to call it, that that we're talking about the, the, the very much the black and white very measurable side of marketing they complement each other super well you know like if you execute well when it comes to things like uh creative and and you know whether it's tv or radio or out of home or any of these channels like they can really lift up direct response so, you know, I'm rambling a bit now, and that's that's probably because it's, it is a hard conversation to have, but I think just keeping an open mind and, you know, thinking through ways that uh, these mindsets or uh, different sort of subsets of marketing might work together or complement each other, I mean, that's always a good place to start.
0: Yeah, it seems like maybe if you were to start on the product side almost and work your way up, you're trying to take responsibility for some of the things that they're not Already assuming that they own might help too.
1: I think that's a great idea. And I, I think outside of building rapport. You know, with other people who who might have a little bit of a different worldview on customer acquisition, outside of it being helpful there. I mean, you know, one of the big mistakes that I've made and that I know is common is that it's really easy to fake growth. And the number one way to be able to do that is is just by finding channels where you can acquire lots of customers, but not really being mindful of of sort of the unit economics, the other half of that equation to what makes a successful customer acquisition channel. And so, your suggestion is. great one for a different reason. Um, but I think equally as importantly, it's it's helpful to start with the product and to worry about levers like retention um, to make sure you're ready for marketing. You know, like if you haven't built something that enough people want and ideally are, are willing to pay for, to me, marketing or customer acquisition, it's just a means to get enough people to the product to figure out you know, assuming you're iterating on the product, you're just trying to get enough people to the product to seeing if some of those like activation retention metrics are improving. You know, it's like, you just want to know if you're steadying the foundation. And I think a lot of times like the foundation isn't steady. People get into customer acquisition and it's kind of intoxicating to see lots of app downloads or lots of views or, or even purchases, but, you know, one-time purchases. But, you know, if, if people aren't coming back, that's sort of like the the biggest mistake I think most startups
0: make. Well, and especially when, you, when you're, you know, you have investors maybe that are setting expectations around consistent growth, you know, period over period or whatever, and now you have to keep plowing increasing amounts of money into it to kind of continue to show that, you know, that up and to the right kind of chart that they're expecting.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, this might be a bit of a polarizing thought, but I think, you know, having worked in companies that have have taken capital, sometimes tens of millions of dollars worth of capital, you have to sort of acknowledge that even even if you have really, really great investors and, you know, backers and stakeholders in the business, like your incentives are are never perfectly aligned, you know, like if you look at sort of the unit economics of how like most investors or funds make money, it's not because they have lots and lots of wins. And so, you know, they kind of have an incentive to figure out who's going to like boom or bust as fast as possible, right? They want to figure out if they should spend their time and energy with a business or even put more capital into it. And again, this is I'm speaking in terms of, of generalizations here and, and stuff like that. But you have to kind of acknowledge, like, again, like just how how most funds are successful. So so there is a lot of pressure to spend money. But, you know, again, you kind of have to realize incentives might not be perfectly aligned. And, you know, we we have these conversations today, you know, still sometimes. I mean, thankfully, we've got really, really awesome investors, but there's always this pressure to spend faster. And, you know, you really want to make sure you're spending responsibly.
0: Yeah, we run into that, you know, in the inside of a kind of the innovation context where because organizations, they're used to measuring success kind of the same way that they measure the success of the core business. So kind of, you know, like the lean startup kind of talks about like innovation accounting versus financial accounting. There's a strong tendency on everybody's part to show ROI and to make it look bigger than maybe it's ready to be. And so that, that whole kind of that concern around premature scaling is still an issue, I think, even inside of a larger company context, just because they're not used to trying risky new stuff. And they want to show that, hey, this, you know, standing up this innovation team was a good idea, or hey, investing in this product was a good idea. When the reality is, is that often it takes, it takes time, it takes time to iterate and kind of find yourself, you talk about like product market fit to kind of get there it's it's really tough because you know they'll want to rather than do like a pilot in a like in a B2B context, they'll want to do a, a big national rollout really, really quickly or they'll do a pilot for the sake of kind of saying we did a pilot or a beta for the sake of that we we're doing a beta, but they're not really committing to this idea of did we legitimately build something that people want?
1: Totally. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I would give to just to back up for, for folks who are part of larger organizations and working on innovation teams and maybe they're trying to sell uh, new ideas in-house and stuff like that. You know, like I told you at the beginning, I only have a um, couple of years of of larger organization sort of management consulting-esque experience. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little limited there, but I, I do think that, you know, one, one thing that that certainly holds true across, you know, folks who are in those shoes versus people who are just kind of like, you know, working on something new is you just kind of have to have buy in from the top that like, this is gonna be like, probably a somewhat long and demoralizing road. And you know, if if people don't have the stomach for it, it's it's just tough. It's tough to make progress. um, You know, when it's very exciting at the beginning. And Sean, you know, you know, this like, better than anyone. But what really sort of like builds character and sort of like is the the real driver of success is the people who can sort of, sort of persist in the trough of sorrow. I think on the outside, starting something new is like a really fun, exciting idea. It really just comes down to like determination and commitment because, you know, of all of the startups that I've studied or, or been a part of, you know, even the ones that go well, it's uh, at some point it's always quite the slog and so you know you know you really need to have that buying from the top and like you just need to have people working on it who sort of have those attributes of you know they want to just constantly learn they take bad news well um that was something that someone told me the other day they 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 told me like one of their best qualities was they take bad news very well and I was laughing and I've been thinking about that a lot I was like yeah that's actually like an amazing competitive advantage we could get into makeups of teams and all that stuff but i think you ultimately got to be excited enough about the problem you're solving with this thing you're building to keep going if it can't hold your attention span or it can't hold sort of like a a boss's attention span it's just like it's really tough
0: i do want to get into to team constellation stuff just because i know you have you have some interesting thoughts on that before we get there though a a couple of kind of follow-ups around you know sort of the the process one For folks where that maybe where where it just sort of sounds vague, what does this actually look like in practical terms? Can can you think of an example, maybe I know you you you've talked before about some of the stuff that you did at the the fundraising startup that really kind of followed the process before you even realized that you were following it. Can you think of examples of what that loop looked like and how focusing on things that weren't necessarily acquisition related were able to kind of generate, you know, real meaningful upside for the organization and, and make every dollar that they spend on marketing kind of go further.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I could sit here and tell you we had like this perfectly thoughtful approach and it just worked <laughs> out. But the reality yeah. is when I, you know, when I kind of got into the startups and tech, I started working for some companies who hadn't really raised much like meaningful capital yet, you know, or, or maybe you're, you're part of an innovation team at a larger organization and you have like a very thin budget. Those sort of constraints You know can be pretty magical and so what that meant for you know in my context was we just didn't have a lot of money to spend on marketing upfront and so what that meant was you know knowing there was ways to grow uh within the product as well You know, we were just kind of hitting the database and, and seeing like where users were getting hung up or maybe going to a coffee shop and and user testing, you know, sort of a sign up flow or something like that with lots of people and just being comfortable with with really awkward silences and and letting them try to figure things out talking to users and just kind of like digging into the product, you know, if you're starting something and it doesn't exist yet, it's assumed that it's, it's, it's somehow relevant to the larger business you're a part of. I mean, I would be going and talking to like customer service people, like the people who are on the ground and just figuring out like, where are people getting hung up, right? As it relates to sort of this, this solution you have in mind. But for us, you know, a lot of it came back to just kind of hitting the database. I mean, we had enough tracking in place where we had sort of all the, the steps of what it took to sort of sign up and 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 start a fundraiser to kind of back up the company that I'm talking about. It was very similar to like a, a GoFundMe, so a crowdfunding platform. Only our specific focus was helping people start fundraisers for specifically for out-of-pocket medical bills and stuff like that. And so, you know, sort of like the uh, activation meant how do we get people to to start fundraisers and sort of, um, you know, make some money for the fundraiser upfront. We had enough events in place within the product to kind of like look at all of those steps and just see where it was broken. You know, and the, and those were always like great examples of like, you know, we didn't have any very very innovative ideas for how we could improve the flow. It was mostly. Like like, oh, this thing, like, isn't working as we, you know, have communicated (laughs) or intend for it to work. So let's just fix it.
0: Talking about the experiments and kind of speed, a number of experiments that you're running is kind of the one metric that you're able to really control or the one variable rather you're able to control. Are you running a bunch of experiments at the same time to move one metric? Are you running a bunch of experiments sort of across the funnel at the same time to kind of maximize speed? Is it just about going for the low hanging fruit and kind of focusing on that effort variable you were talking about, and like just picking off the real quick ones as quickly as you can. If you are doing things kind of across the funnel at the same time, or you're just running multiple experiments simultaneously, from a measurement perspective, teasing out like, what is it that's causing the lift? Any suggestions on how organizations can can move faster and control that one that one variable that that they can totally control?
1: It's like a million dollar question. You know, I think tracking is really tough and and what sort of optimal things you should be doing at once and how many levers should they sort of hit. I would kind of encourage people to do some Googling because I think everyone's got different thoughts there. And I don't I don't think we've necessarily figured it out. I I will tell you, like in the early days, I think sometimes people get hung up on like trying to start and finish an experiment and like definitively saying what it means. And, you know, let's just take like customer acquisition. Right. And let's say you're um, testing out a new a new marketing channel. Channel, right? Let's say you think Apple App Store ads could just be be money for this thing that you've built instead of like in a week or two weeks or whatever, um, having a goal to like conclusively say like this is where we need to double down and spend 80% of our marketing budget, you want enough evidence to basically figure out is it like a hard no? Like is, is this thing just not meant for us right now? Because again, like I told you earlier, it's really important to kind of embrace like a not to do list and figure out given that you're resource constrained, what's all the things we're not going to focus on. And so so figuring out that a channel just is, is not the thing is actually like the, the the next best thing to like hitting it out of the park which is a little bit of a counterintuitive thought um, but you know outside of like a hard no you don't need like this definitive yes you just need like you know in this initial test like hey there's something here we're we're able to acquire customers for for twice what our goal was and we've only been doing this for two weeks you know it looks like there's lots of scale right there's lots more of uh, sort of impression opportunities and, and keywords around uh, search volume I suppose around like This thing that we've built. So you're just kind of looking for like those general insights. Like, is it enough to keep going or is it a hard no? I think some people get really hung up on, you know, is this absolutely positively like the next best thing or not? So that would be like the first piece of advice in terms of like running multiple things across the funnel. You know, I work for, like I mentioned, like a later stage startup. We've got hundreds of employees you know we're doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue and stuff like that and and the reason i say that stuff is is just because i think it's really important to know that we're still super resource constrained we actually do have an official growth team we don't have usually the luxury of running five product experiments at once it would be a good problem to have figuring out are you are you kind of running too much but i think for a lot of early companies and even as you as you move forward, like it's 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 hard to run lots and lots of stuff at once. I mean, I, what do you think? I know you've got like you've got some views on this one too. We don't.
0: I well, you know, it's the same sort of problem, and 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 most of the stuff that we work on is earlier, so it's it's a lot more like your kind of your previous experience, and so it's a similar sort of issue. We will try to do product experiments and acquisition experiments maybe at the same time. Uh, but to your point, kind of running a bunch of product experiments in particular can be really really tough. We have not cracked the nut on a, well, on a bunch of things. I mean, like correlation versus causation on you know a lot of the multi-touch like attribution stuff, like figuring out which one of these things really move the needle. You know from an acquisition perspective, we we try to we try to allocate resources effectively, but when you're testing new stuff, it's you know sometimes it can be hard. I would imagine it's even harder when you start talking about like you were saying brand and how it's you notice that uh, your metrics improve on some of the direct response stuff but it probably is hard to figure out which campaign in particular was responsible for the lift. And I would imagine that's probably accurate. Is that, is, is that the case?
1: That's definitely true. But you know, even what you're saying, it kind of reminds me of this idea of like, um, a test that's very much focused on just changing one thing versus like a multivariate test. And we kind of have that discussion in house all the time. And I think, you know, if you do want to run lots of tests at once, kind of two pieces of advice. The first one is uh, make sure you're not running so much that you can't, again, come away with some sort of insight, right? Some sort of insight around like, you know, we just, we should move on to the next thing or we should maybe keep going. When it comes to sort of these multivariate tests, what I mean by that is, is, is maybe you're actually running a product tests where you're changing numerous things or I guess multivariate could even mean maybe you're just running lots of tests at once and I think like a question to ask the team is like are we okay you know just kind of acknowledging the realities like you're talking about like maybe we we kind of fall short when it comes to multifaceted attribution models and all this stuff and so given that are we okay not knowing uh which of these five variables like caused something to be much better or are, are we unwilling to sort of accept that? We run multivariate tests all the time. We just kind of are upfront front and we have to say, like, you know, we're going to change a lot of things about the product. And uh, just given sort of like the goals of the business and all of this stuff, like maybe there's lots of urgency and stuff like that. We're OK. If, if it's better, we're OK just deploying this experience and then maybe at a future date sort of like trying to back into what specifically about, you know, those five or half a dozen changes really move the needle because the reality is they probably all don't. Matter. Some of them might actually make the product worse, um, but you just kind of have to come to terms with, you know, uh, if you're okay not fully knowing or not. That sort of informs the type of tests around.
0: People think of A/B testing. They probably think of like Amazon's like hundred shades of blue. And I've never worked on a project that had that sort of scale where, if you do that, you're you're moving way too slow. And like you were saying, I mean, like the big changes, you almost have to when you're constrained from a resource perspective because otherwise, you just it's going to take you way too long to kind of find those lifts. Especially given, like you were saying earlier, that a lot of the experiments don't don't end up working out.
1: Yeah, I think early on, you know, that that's generally a good piece of advice. If you're only changing like this one thing and it's very early and you have a small subset of customers, uh, you're probably not testing like ambitious enough things. And like, you know, don't worry about this idea of not knowing like your goal is you want to you know, you want to acquire twice as many customers or you want to improve the signup flow by 50%. You're not looking for like a 5% relative improvement. You're looking for like a 50% absolute improvement. So if you sort of adopt that mentality, yeah, you you have the freedom to change more things. And again, you just kind of have to get content uh, knowing that even though you're better off, you might not be exactly sure why. And and that's okay sometimes.
0: Yeah, I've told our team before, and this is, I'm sure this is sacrilege, but <laughs> lacking causation, you know, I'll take correlation. (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't know if this is actually causing it, but it seems to be correlated. And that's, that's good enough for me, you know, for now, let's deploy and kind of move forward. There's also in our context, there's a client education piece to this. And then, you know, for you, I would imagine there's sort of an internal team education piece where, you know, you'll run a test higher up in the funnel. So like on your registration page or something like that, and it works and you see, Hey, here's a 15% lift on this and we deploy it. Their thinking is that well that's that's that obviously is going to trickle all the way down and have a fifteen percent kind of bump to the bottom line and at least in my experience it doesn't usually work out that way and and any change that you make from a channel perspective or a creative perspective or a in app perspective these people that are coming in now are fundamentally kind of interacting with a different sort of product and so the behavior is going to be be different but teaching people to understand that. All of these things are so interrelated, you know, teasing it out and is going to be tough and then extrapolating that, that 8% lift here all the way down the funnel is obviously not going to, that's not going to be how it's going to manifest ultimately as well
1: there's people a lot smarter than me or more qualified to kind of go down the, the rabbit's hole of false positives when it comes to a B tests and stuff like that there's a there's a guy named uh, Evan Miller who writes uh, some really thoughtful things around just just kind of things to pay attention to when you are testing different experiences and just kind of making sure you have like you know some sort of like statistics 101 knowledge um, that can that can save you some time but totally hear you man I think these are these are all real struggles I mean some of them you know we're definitely still living today and I think you, you kind of have to be okay with uh, some of this ambiguity and not knowing if you want to move forward fast enough. It's like this delicate balance though, right? It's like, how do you, uh, how do you make sure like you're using data and, and math and quality tracking to sort of have conviction around what you do next, um, but also not let it sort of like get in the way, uh, get in the way of that ability to, like I said, like uh, earlier, kind of operate above the blizzard
0: For us, in a lot of cases, we, you know, we or our clients have that reverse problem where they don't have any tracking set up, or at least the kind of tracking that allows us to identify these sorts of kind of in product kind of insights, you know, they track sales, or they track registrations But they don't necessarily track kind of all of the events that lead up to that or that or don't lead up to that. So we usually we usually have the reverse problem.
1: Yeah, you know, I I definitely have assumed a little bit you have the luxury of having some data you can look at in many of these cases. But I think like the larger takeaway here is, you know, when it comes to starting something, even if you don't have data, that's fine. But like, go make data, like go talk to potential customers, like don't sit in a, uh, you know, a conference room and sort of like ideate with a bunch of executives who aren't even going to be like the user of the product. Product. And so I think, you know, you shouldn't like let this whole idea of like, we don't have analytics set up or like we don't have users sort of uh, get in the way of putting in the work, as I would call it, go talk to talk to people, right? Listen, one of the hard pills to swallow is nose, right? Taking taking bad news well, but the best feedback you can get when you want to build something outside of it working again is like, Oh, it just doesn't work. Like we're solving a problem that like, isn't it's not a big enough problem to actually create value for users. Like those are insights you want to learn in the early days and not like six months into sort of like building out uh, an MVP. Well, hopefully it's it's not taking six months to build out an MVP, but I realize in, in some cases it might. And especially if you're in a large organization, like selling these things absolutely
0: positively take time. So it's funny. I, I was having a conversation with our creative director internally, and it was about—it was more around like design thinking types of exercises. But it's a very similar sort of thing, I think, to some of to some of this, where you know, you mentioned unbridled ideation sort of at the beginning. When we do design thinking exercises, you know, there's often sort of, you know, you do these how might we do, how might we solve this problem of X, Y, and Z? And the discussion was that a lot of what like UX is is pattern recognition. And it's your ability to some degree to come up with a, an effective or a novel solution is at least partially dependent on the quality of the inputs that you have kind of coming in. And so like, if you just bring, yes, bringing some random person that's not working on a project kind of in to sit and listen, uh, and to throw out ideas is better than nothing. But doing some prep work in advance and and like in a design thinking workshop or in, I would argue, probably in a, in a, in sort of an unbridled ideation thing, obviously if if I'm informed by what my customer has said, so like you were saying, kind of, you know, prefacing that with actually going out and seeing how they use it, looking at the quantitative data and having that inform your ideation. And then, you know, you mentioned, the potential risks of becoming sort of prescriptive and looking at what other people have done and just sort of saying, oh, let's do that and how how that can be risky. At the same time, though, those are inputs that I can potentially bring and be like, hey, I remember this completely unrelated product or this completely unrelated industry or whatever. They, they solved a similar type of problem by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, what if we tried that? In those design thinking contexts, at least, coming out, bringing quality inputs in and trying to do some prep work on a project basis, but also just becoming curious in general and becoming, exposing yourself to a lot more inputs really has a big impact in terms of the quality of some of the ideas that kind of happen in those sessions. Does that, does that make sense at all? Or do you think, does that map to your, I think it's a really
1: powerful point. I think again, like, especially when you're starting, you know, don't get hung up on, not having certain inputs, and and don't get hung up on this idea that like a quality input needs to be hundreds of pieces of input, right? Um, it, it doesn't. And there's obviously there's there's plenty of reading out there around like you know picking up UX patterns and stuff like that, and how in reality it generally takes like a, a small subset of users to actually figure out sort of what's what's the you know small amount of things we should fix that would you know sort of satisfy eighty percent of the product needs. But I think to your point you know that the big takeaway there is that, yeah don't 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 get hung up that your inputs aren't good enough. Like just go find any inputs, and you know if you're curious and you're bringing inputs to the table that are actually rooted in like actual user feedback, right? Not just kind of from your head, but it, talking and listening to a potential customer, all that stuff. I mean, staying close to the customers. Paul Graham's a a great guy. You know, you can go read the Paul Graham essays if you're really into to startups and you know starting new stuff. He talks a lot about just how users have lots of the answers and how I think as you grow or, you know, maybe just based on uh, your actual role, you don't think it's necessarily your job to to talk to users. But nine times out of 10, I can't think of a better use of time than just going and like listening to some users and and studying them, uh, either using the product or reacting to you, sort of talking through a product that you have.
0: Let's talk a little bit about team. I know it looks different uh, depending on kind of the stage of an organization. But, you know, in order to execute on something like this, you need to have more than just a person with a marketing kind of mind. What what do you think some of the skill sets are, I guess, that are necessary? Maybe they're, maybe they're sometimes resident inside of a single person, maybe not. But in order to successfully execute kind of on a growth, rapid sort of experimentation kind of process, what do you think some of the skill sets are that you need inside of a team?
1: Yeah. And so is it like kind of safe to assume we're building a piece of software here? But yeah, sure. Let's uh, see. <laughs> Even before you get into skill sets, I think it, like character attributes are an interesting one. I mean, you keep curious people, like you said, is 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 a big deal. You want to find people who just, like I said, uh, are comfortable with bad news. They've got a lot of persistence and determination. You know, sort of like the whole idea of. A rapid rate of learning is sort of the reward, um, and that's enough. I think all of those things are are really good things in terms of the makeup of like you know maybe an ideal early team building software. I mean, the first thing I would say is even before you get into again, I guess the skill sets is you should have people on the team uh, who are essentially the customer. It's really hard to build something if you are not the customer, right? And you kind of have to sort of like guess at what the customer wants. That's kind of like advice number one, be the customer, because then you can move a lot faster, right? You can just kind of think about um, how you would create value for your, for yourself maybe, hopefully in addition to talking to some people, but those are good. And then when it comes to the actual skill sets, you know, some sort of developer um, that lends itself to whatever platform you're building on, you need some sort of design help, uh, design matters, Um uh you know i'm not the the best guy to talk about that but you know very well i think technical marketers so people who again are really into direct response marketing yeah i think they're really good because they're generally detail oriented so they can kind of double as product managers and they also have like enough empathy for like a product team a developer and a designer to to basically have uh have enough empathy and respect for what they're asking them to do. One of the tough things is um, it's really easy for someone to say a couple of sentences and create five, six weeks of work for a developer. And I think having knowledge of what it's going to take and what you're asking and, and why that's hard and what you can maybe strip away. Those are things that are just good for like kind of building, building morale of the team. Someone with some sort of like analytics background, if they're a data scientist, great, but Hey, what does that even mean these days? So if you just have someone who, uh, is a bit of a truth seeker and is going to kind of like keep you honest to, to what you're hearing, whether it's qualitative insights or quantitative insights, you know, maybe from the database, et cetera. Those are like general people. Obviously, you need the skill sets, but attributes like character attributes really, really matter. I think if you just find people who are excited to kind of build like shiny new things instead of like building things that actually solve a real and deep problem, that's tough
0: other than getting people just to sort of buy into this idea in general around kind of rapid experimentation, it seems like one of the bigger sticking points has been, because like you said, so many teams are resource constrained, and almost by definition, resource constrained, getting access to probably most often developer time, right? Like, it's pretty hard to kind of get a dedicated growth engineer kind of on a team, especially early on. How do you kind of recommend sort of advocating for getting resources, particularly from kind of a development perspective, when you're just sort of getting started and, and maybe a team isn't willing to say, hey, here are your five or six people for your kind of growth team. Any any recommendations there?
1: Yeah, I think kind of like a first, first principles approach is helpful. So um, for anyone who hasn't heard that before, it's really just kind of like I think of it as like speaking in facts and letting facts do the talking. So I think when it comes to getting more developer time or any developer time, for me, it always comes back to, well, first of all, you got to find someone who's excited about the opportunity, right? You need to find like a developer who kind of fits the mold and gets fired up about the work. I mean, I think people who are excited about the problem, like you can't understate their importance. Because again, it's at some point, it's going to get inevitably hard and demoralizing. And if you're not excited about the problem it's it's tough to kind of keep going but I think then when it comes to sort of like assuming you have someone who's excited about it and you're just trying to get buy-in from the top putting forth what they could work on on a growth team and the value that could create for the business uh, relative to maybe what else they're working on I think uh, generally I, I, I've found that there's usually a good argument there. Kind of speaking in, in in first principles, you just let the facts do the talking. It it kind of forces you to be like really well researched and prepared. It's not very hard to show that like having them work work on X versus Y could have a significant financial benefit to the business, stuff like that. You also got to figure out, you know, who are you trying to get buy-in from? What, you know, what are the things that make them look good? What do they care about? All that stuff. And kind of playing to that. I mean, I hate to like get a little bit political and stuff like that, but who are we kidding? I mean, that <laughs> stuff, that stuff matters, especially if you're in like a larger, larger company. So,
0: One of the tools that we've been using a lot more kind of in the last year, this is a Brian Balfour idea as well, is that idea of a growth model. And Getting like super granular with it, a lot of people, especially my students, they sort of roll their eyes when I show them when I first start talking about a growth model, but then we get into it and they're like, we've never done anything in this level of detail before. And I've never seen it when we're hearing pitches from potential startups or whatever, but trying to visualize and quantify all of those levers. So like here are the six steps during activation. Here are the three different sort of referral loops that maybe we have inside of a product. And these are all the steps that kind of live in there. That's been really helpful for us with clients, but also even with like the engineers where we say, hey, we could spend three months on this feature, this new feature, because that was the next thing that's on the roadmap just because. And what do we think the impact would potentially be of that or to your point around some of the level of effort stuff, like here are 10 ideas that we've identified that are really low effort and that we think will influence a variable that we can already quantify and show kind of what the lift looks like. And just like plugging it into the model and doing kind of a sensitivity analysis. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, why don't we we start there? And I'll, I'll link to it in the notes The model has been really, really helpful for us kind of as an internal team as well as kind of communicating that with clients.
1: Sure. I'm sure it's been like a humbling experience, you know, whether it's for you guys or the client, like just to I think, you know, the reason those detailed models are like are are very helpful, even if they're all models are flawed. Right. But some are useful. And I think what that means is just like it kind of opens your eyes to the road ahead getting that sense of awareness before you start it and sort of like I said a degree of humility because of it is it's going to help you know you want to make sure everyone has like the stomach for what's ahead and and is still excited all that stuff so no I I, you know I took a look at it you uh, sent it over to me a little while ago and I was I was super impressed I mean a lot of that stuff was uh is more savvy than some of the stuff I'm using so hats off
0: everybody gets it from other people. So it's, that was, that was all Belfort. And, uh, you mentioned Reforge. It's a really good thing. I believe that they're actually coming out with a new course. That's all about just, just growth models. And I think that they go into even a lot more day. And Casey Winters. I'm excited to kind of see, see that course and, and see what we can learn from that one. But you're right. When we show that to clients too, we're potential founders. I mean, like they say, Hey, I'm raising one and a half million dollars and, X amount of it's going to go to marketing, and our plan is to get to fifty thousand paying customers over the next twelve months. And I'm like, hey, how do you plan on how do you plan on getting there? And they're like, well, there's this bucket of money, and uh, we're going to do word of mouth, and we're going to do paid paid marketing. And it's like, yeah, but how, you know? And and by showing to your point about showing them the road ahead, like when you plug that stuff in the model, you're like, you're like, man getting to 50,000 is going to take a lot more work than we thought. Or like when they say, Hey, we're going to do content marketing. It's like, do you know what that means? <laughs> How many articles are you going to have to write to rank organically? You know, what's the monthly search volume on all of those and you're expected to click through rate and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, wow, uh, we need to really buckle up and, and plan on, on hustling here. You know?
1: Couldn't agree more, Sean.
0: You talked about process and you've talked about kind of team. Um, I know you're a big, believer in culture too. And, and once you've got that team together, and I know process helps with a lot of it, but what are some other sort of recommendations or lessons in terms of instilling a culture of growth to to make this this sort of stuff stick?
1: You know, one of the ways to, to kind of shortcut there is just find people who, who really fit the mold. I mean, I think there's just certain things you can't teach. Like I said, I think you just have to find people who are determined and who are okay being wrong a lot and are just very much curious and truth seekers. So all of those things are a great start. I think kind of setting the precedent up front and that kind of goes back to like the piece of advice I gave around making sure you really have buy-in and people kind of really understand how difficult the road ahead is likely going to be. And, and, you know, I don't mean to, um, talk about it negatively, because I, I love it, man. I think like the, the learning curve of these sorts of opportunities is just ridiculous. I mean, it's, you know, you grind it out for six months, and and you know, you hit some hard times, but then you come up for air. you just you've built this new skill set. And, you know, it's just like, uh, that sort of like, high rate of learning never stops. And I think uh, there's certain people who just, you know, have an appetite for it. So starting there, but I think setting the precedent up front, like it's okay, sort of giving people like a little bit of a degree of predictability around like what's going to happen of course you don't know what's going to happen but you know we all know the general trends for even you know sort of the new ventures that are successful i mean at some point it it gets really hard and all that good stuff so setting an expectation up front hiring people who sort of fit the mold i would ask some tough questions in the early days to really make sure people are are doing this for the right reasons it's not because it's like it seems like a Uh, a cool idea. Of course, it can seem like that, but it needs to be like something more like people really need to have like a a belief in the idea. I find if you if you kind of find people who already fit the mold, like that stuff happens more organically.
0: Folks that have worked with you before, I mean, some of the things that they pointed out that they thought you were awesome at were you talked in the past about like lore and kind of getting that out of there where it's just sort of the loudest person in the room gets to have their say. And by really kind of Letting the data and letting the customer be the source of truth has been really, really helpful. You talked about how most of these things sort of, sort of fail. Having people who are okay with that is really important. But you have a reputation, I think, for being a cheerleader in terms of, and not in a derogatory way, but just like a like keeping people's enthusiasm levels high and and communicating to them that you know yes, yes, this is going to be a slog, and yes, it's okay. Uh, that we fail, but also like look at the progress that we've made. You're celebrating these small wins and all that kind of stuff. And like you were saying, like you step back and you're like, hey, look at the progress that we've made in the last year. And then on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't look like it, but like we're we're a completely different company from what we were a year ago, and it's because of this sort of slog kind of stuff. And then I think the last one was like you have a reputation kind of for modeling the type of behavior. Right. And so kind of demonstrating the type of stuff that you hope for kind of in your, in your team and not sort of being the person that has like minions that just sort of, (laughs) you say, do this and they go and do it, but actually kind of getting your hands dirty. And and I don't know if that's, if that's deliberate or if that's just sort of like, if you're like me and you have sort of imposter syndrome and you want to keep your street cred or whatever. But, uh, those are some things that, that other people have said about you in terms of kind of how do you, how do you, once you get the team together, like how do you kind of keep momentum going? So you know, I, I
1: know the people that I very much look up to and mentors like you and stuff like that have always appreciated that they're still in the trenches. That carries a lot of weight for me. The other thing uh, lately, I've just been trying to get out of the way a little more. We've we've built a little, uh, a good amount of momentum with, with our growth team and stuff like that. And, you know, I think that takes time. We've been at it for uh, the team's been like a formal team for, uh, several years now at the the company I'm currently at. Um, but yeah, I think lately, you know, sometimes you just need to get out of the way. I, I can think about all of the best growth ideas that have happened on growth teams that I've been a part of. And, uh, not one of them was my idea, you know? And so like getting comfortable with this idea, I think, what do you bring to the table and what do you do? And I think the the thing that I'm always focused on bringing to the table is just making sure there is a culture of where, you know, you kind of mentioned this idea of like Ray Dahlia's idea of like the idea meritocracy, like best idea wins, right? doesn't matter who it comes from. It's just, let's go back to those ice scores, impact, confidence, and effort. And then just making sure people have the tools, the tools and the time and sort of like the buy-in to execute. And like I said, just just getting out of the way great growth ideas are all around you. I think that's why it's really important to, you know, we talked a lot about going and talking to customer service teams or, you know, how growth teams are very much cross disciplinary. Um, there's marketers, there's designers, there's status scientists, there might even be a support person if, if, if the team's large enough. Um, the reason that's so important is because the best ideas are, are all around us and we all, whether we like it or not, are operating in these silos. And so it's really important to get enough people in the room to sort of break down those barriers.
0: You're not a super visible guy online, but if folks wanted to find out more about, you know, what you're up to, any place I can send them?
1: Yeah, I mean, you might want to tell your audience I'm a bit of a technology laggard, so they should take all this <laughs> advice with a uh, grain of salt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I'm coming to you from, uh, the woods right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, uh, emails best. So mike.j.rome, okay. dot dot uh, roam, like the city, R-O-M-E at gmail.com. So hit me up anytime. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. And, uh, it's always like really awesome to talk to you and, you know, it's an honor to be part of this podcast. I mean, I think you're doing great work. So, uh, hopefully it's helpful to, to some of the audience.
0: Very cool, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, Sean. All right. My guest today was Mike Rome, head of growth at Eat Street. For show notes and access to the rest of our episodes, check out digintent.com slash podcast. And if you like the podcast, would love a review. Uh, We actually give away a pair of custom DI sneakers each month to a lucky reviewer. Uh, You can check them out and get more info at digintent.com slash sneakers. Until next time, I'm Sean Johnson. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. How do you scale something 10x and then go back and scale it 10x again? It turns out the answer is surprisingly simple, at least in one case, and yet very few organizations have the discipline to do it. My guest today is Elon Mossbacher, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Operations at SpotHero. And in this conversation, we talk about how Elon and his team went about growing SpotHero into the largest mobile parking platform in the country, Elon has a ton of experience around building marketplace businesses, pursuing strategic partnerships, and a lot more. He's also super thoughtful about the future of mobility in general, and we got into a pretty fascinating conversation around autonomous vehicles, scooters, and where he thinks things are headed. I always enjoy my conversations with Elon, and I hope you find this as interesting as I did.